Cool. Right. So um, here we are again. Uh, welcome to another edition of uh, Splendid and Friends. Hi to those folks in the room with us live. Hi to those people who will be listening uh, to the podcast. Um, as always, some new faces. Um, my name's Paul Blake. I'm uh, your co-host. Uh, with me, I have Lisa Marie Diemer. Hello, hello. Welcome, now, everyone. So, uh, Lisa Marie uh, will be looking after the chat room. Uh, so, those of you uh, with us live, feel please feel free to post some questions as we go. Um, Lisa will throw some of those into the mix uh, along the way, uh, and some of those we will save um, uh, until uh, the end of business. Uh, uh, because those of you in the room, this get 15 minutes extra bonus time. Um, tonight, uh, we're diving into um, behavioral design, and I am really pleased, uh, first time in a long time, to say hello to Fiona Meehan, uh, who is Chief Eco Innovation Officer at Street and Director of the Innovation Practice at Mate Studios. Hello, Fiona. Hi there, Paul, and hi, everybody. I have reservations about this book. How are you doing? It's been a while. Yeah, it has. Um, so, um, before we get going, um, we're broadcasting um, on the lands of the Jajawarung people, the Kulin Nation. Uh, I'd uh, like to acknowledge them, and I'd like to also acknowledge the traditional uh, custodians of all the lands on which we're meeting virtually today, uh, and pay my respects uh, to elders uh, past and present. Um, let's get rolling. So Fiona, I've got a good idea of the, um, uh, of the great work that, that you do uh, as part of the team at Make Studios, who for the uninitiated uh, have offices in uh, Melbourne and Hong Kong, right Fiona? Is that, that's, that's right. Uh, I am super interested, uh, before we get right into it, in hearing a little bit about uh, your role as Chief Eco Innovation Officer at Street. Uh, I know a little bit about Street, but perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the organisation and a bit about that role, because secretly it sounds like a job that I want myself, so I want to know how to be one. <laughs> I feel super lucky to be in this role, I have to be honest. Um, so I'm not, uh, the seat won't be empty anytime soon, I hope. <laughs> um, one time but hope. <laughs> um, but, um, so Street is a food system social enterprise. Um, and we, our primary reason for being is we help young people who um, are, need a hand um, and help them with um, hospitality training and also pathways to employment more recently in horticulture as well. Um, we have a range of businesses within our social enterprise. They include a cafe, or several cafes actually, a bakery, a roastery, a catering, catering arm, and we've just more recently started to move into um, horticulture as well. So we'll be looking at creating a rewilding team that young people can um, start to um, get training in. Um, but the other thing that I guess a lot of people haven't known about Street, but it has been there since day one, is we're about looking at healthy people and a healthy planet because you can't really have healthy people if you don't have a healthy planet. Um, so that's enter um, Chief Eco Innovation role, which is... Um, are really, really fantastic. So um, our organisation has formalised what we've been doing in the planet space at around, uh, well, we've been doing things for a long time, but around the end of 2017, we created a planet plan um, and we've been, we're actually about to launch um, a much more detailed plan that looks to 2030 and beyond um, in a whole range of different um ways of looking at um, becoming deeper, going deeper shades of green and being more right. sustainable and regenerative. Um, we declared a climate emergency at the end of 2019 and that's really helped us to sort of, you know, be very serious about that as well as the the training that we're doing for with young people. So it's awesome to hear at least some people were taking it uh, uh, more seriously than maybe others are in the country and that's as political as I'll get tonight and we'll, <laughs> we'll move on from there. Um, so um, moving then into your interest in, in behavioural design, where, where, where does that stem from? 
It stems, it actually, I actually have a background in psychology. I'm a psychologist. I've worked in um, human factors and cognitive psychology. So way back in uni days, I was really interested in a lot of those social psychology, you know, classes that you do where you start to learn about persuasive design and how people think and an unconscious processing. Mm. And um, I did a stint um, in around 2000. I lived in the States and I was very fortunate to meet a person called Susan Weinschenk, who she's a professor at the University of Wisconsin. I probably pronounced that incorrectly, but um, Wisconsin, I think some people say. Um, and um, she has did a lot of work with eye tracking um, and understanding, you know, how people actually um, interact with websites to begin with. But then she started to get more into persuasive design as well. So that's really where it stemmed way back then. And then I kind of thought human-centered design is great, um, but we sometimes lose a bit of precision. Like, so a lot of time, the times we design things based on really solid heuristics and principles. However, there's so many factors that influence people at particular moments that matter that just applying human-centered design as a broad brushstroke doesn't necessarily get the level of precision always that we would like. So I really wanted to sort of work out a way that maybe we could tap into that. Right. And I know you've done a heap of work on kind of bringing the powers of both behavioural design and human-centred design together. And I'm mm -hmm. really interested in diving into that in a little while. But I thought uh, if only for my own benefit, uh, if not necessarily for the benefit of the audience, I wanted to step through some of the kind of component parts of behavioural design first, just to kind of unpack those a little bit. So um, first off, um, so bringing it down to my level, um, so in behavioural design, you need to understand those kind of cognitive biases and also people's motivations uh, in order to kind of design uh, interventions that kind of influence a change of behaviour in some way. So I'd like to start by talking about the bias part of things. So um, how do these biases get into our brains um, and, and what, how and why do they get in there and then how do they manifest themselves? Yep. So cognitive biases um, are really about our way of making sense of the world. And some of them, or a large proportion of them, come about because uh, it's from an evolutionary perspective. Um, and it's a way for our brains to fast track information. So it's, it's um, a lot of them have come through yeah, evolution over time. And then another component is culturally and the way that you are nurtured and your environment and so forth. You start to learn things about the world and your brain processes that to understand, to accommodate and assimilate the things that you've learned. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it's really important to have those in place because um, just to put everything into context, we process about 11 million bits of information a second, um, but we're only actually conscious of about between 16 and 42 bits of information every second. Um, and you can imagine if we were aware of all of the different things that we were um, processing, we just would come to a standstill. We wouldn't be able to, to do anything. So they're really, really important. And I guess just to sort of also, um, when we're talking about cognitive biases, I guess I would also say they actually comprise of um, co both cognitive and social influences that you might experience at particular moments and also the context that you're within. Right. Um, and what's really important about that, um, and some of you may have read um, this book, um, Thinking Fast and Slow. So this is really, there's a lot of information about that where it talks about um, the importance of like where cognitive biases are really help, helpful for us to be able to fast track what we need to be able to do. Um, sometimes it, it backfires, but a lot of the time it's really helpful. So you can imagine if you actually saw something that um, was furry, had really sharp teeth and was growling at you, you wouldn't want to sit around and wait um, to find out whether or not it was safe to go near it. It's probably better to, um, you know, you're alive to eat your lunch rather than be lunch. Um, so they can be really, really helpful um, in that respect. Um, but they can also sometimes be unhelpful as well. So it depends mm. on the context. But um, some of you may have heard of a person called Buster Benson. And Buster Benson actually went ahead and he looked at all of the, he's actually created this codex. It's really amazing. It's got a picture of a brain in the middle and it sort of um, classifies the different kinds of biases that you have but there's four key reasons why we have these biases really so it's um working out what should you remember so mm -hmm. what are the things out of all the stuff that you know which things should you focus on to remember 
um, it would be helpful. And also when there's too much information, which things, um, you know, are the most important things to pay attention to? Um, I, I mentioned before about needing to act fast. So that's really important yeah. as well. Yeah. And sometimes when there's not enough meaning, how do we fill in the gaps through unconscious processing? So they're the four sort of key areas right. yeah. um, of, of how cognitive biases have came, come to be and why, you know, why they're there. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. And interesting there about talking about sort of context, as as with heaps of other areas of design, context is everything, right? So, I mean, I grew up in, uh, accent gives it away, I grew up in the UK, uh, seeing a snake in the UK, uh, well, kind of didn't happen. And when it did, you weren't too worried about it. I've seen several snakes since I moved out into uh, country Victoria, and I worry about that quite a lot, right? So, uh, uh, so it, the context in which you experience these things obviously has a uh, has a bearing as well. Definitely. Um, so let's let's. Um, could you give us some sort of common examples of of, of biases? Uh, I, you know, I, I know of confirmation bias. So, which uh, my understanding is that you, you you kind of go looking for the small pieces of information that that kind of uh, match your worldview rather than ignore the overwhelming weight of evidence that might challenge your worldview. Um, what, are, what are some other uh, common examples? Yeah, so um, I, I, a really cool example I think is, um, there's, this is a combination of two biases. So one is self-signaling. So we tend to behave in a way we believe, we tend to act in a way that's consistent to our self-image, the way that we see ourselves. Um, and the other one is social proof. So if we see or believe that people um, that we look up to or identify as being part of the same group as us, um, we are more likely to behave in the way that they behave. And a really cool example of where those two can come into play is um, an example of when you go to a hotel, um, you, um, you know, most hotels these days have a towel reuse program where they ask you to you know put your towels up and so forth and they've done experiments where they've shown if they actually say more than please put your towel up but they give you a signal about you know people like you x percent of people like you or people of the group that you belong to um, have been using reusing the towel you're more likely to do it if you right. also um, mention even go a step further and talk about um, you know specific people that you are, that you look up to and identify with that can increase your chances of, um, of um, recycling, reusing your towel. So that's that's one one example. Mm. Um, a fun one that I like. Well, it's not fun for unfortunately for the people who have been um, exposed to it, but we often underestimate how much our biology can take over from um, you know our rational thinking. And this bias that I'm going to talk about is ego depletion. So when we're really tired and hungry, we tend to take shortcuts um, in our thinking. And one, one example of where that has really misfired, it was a study done in Israel where people who were applying for parole in a court and they were, they were being um, going, uh, um, they were being um, heard by a judge and judges who had years and years of experience, but none of them that actually were heard just before lunch were granted parole. So the later on in the day that it, it went, the less likely you were to um, actually get parole. So lesson learned if you ever find yourself in the unfortunate position of um you know being in, in jail and needing to go for parole try and schedule it for first thing in the morning it's, that's what that's always always a always a possibility with me so that's i'll take if i take nothing else away from, from this evening it will be that <laughs> <laughs> um slightly off, to off topic but um uh in design generally we talk a lot about um sort of becoming aware and sort of checking our own biases is there any uh, do you have any tips or or thoughts on on how we can become more self-aware of, of of our own biases and how we might kind of evaluate those yeah well something that i've personally found really confronting um has been there's a, a um you can go to this a website um and it's called the harvard implicit association test you can go to that and there's a bunch of different tests you can do um, where it actually looks at how you associate good or bad bad weighted words with a particular bias. So they look at things from gender to skin tone to age, 
sexuality. They look at different countries, what you think of different countries and race. And, um, you know, we, we're all born with, we're not born, as I mentioned, some of some things that you're born with and others are things that you learn or, um, you know, you, you observe in life and assimilate. Um, and that one, actually, it's about reaction time. So you can't fudge, the, if you do the test, honestly, you can't fudge it really. Um, and, you know, that can be quite confronting when you realise you actually have some biases that you weren't aware of at all. Um, I've seen that myself and it was a real moment of truth, you know, to actually, you know, you think consciously, that's not me, I'm not biased, but we all are. Yeah. So that I would definitely recommend um, that Harvard Implicit Association test if anybody's interested in, you know, checking out how biased or not they are. Now, some of these... Um, um... Uh, sort of reframing uh, some of these um, behaviours and attributes um, um, can have a positive effect. I know that you've spoken previously about, there's one around um, uh, organ donation, so um, making organ donation uh, and opt out rather than opt in uh, means that the um, uh, percentage of uh, of organ donation goes up. So paraphrasing uh, your much more eloquent way of describing it previously, but um, can you um, um, uh, can you sort of talk a little bit more about uh, about how to kind of identify and, and reframe some of those um, habits in a uh, to, to drive positive change? Yeah. So um, that that particular the organ donation example, uh, basically that's relying on the default bias. So mm -hmm. if something is a default, um, people often will um, go with that. Um, mm -hmm. They will often associate that somebody else has done some thinking for them that they don't need. When we talked before about shortcutting things um, in your brain, if you feel that somebody else has um, done the work for you in making a choice, sometimes you don't give it much thought at all. Um, and with the organ donation example, for countries where um, organ donation is an opt-out opt um, program, yeah, they have actually 55% more donors than other countries. So that's actually, they have about 85% of people donate their organs as wow. opposed to others. Um, it does raise some interesting ethical questions mm. as well, because you mentioned the word good before. And um, I guess most of us would probably think that that is, is a positive thing. Yeah, it's a bias, um, bias of mine right there, right? I see that as good. <laughs> yeah, and most people do. But I guess there's um, we've also got to be thinking when we're designing nudges, I guess I've, I've, the more I've gotten into this, the more I've felt it's important to examine other things. So um, for that particular bias, uh, the questions are, what if somebody has just newly arrived in a country and they don't really understand what they're doing and they have a religious belief that mm -hmm. would mean that they wouldn't want to donate their organs how do mm. we and what about people who are not that educated and don't actually understand what will happen so there are some you know it does potentially have a an element of paternalism in there that we have to yeah. be a little bit careful of so it's it's quite interesting and then there are other kinds of reframes like so another example would be um, when we're thinking about uh, uh, cancer treatments and procedures. So there was a study done where doctors were presented with exactly the same information, but in one example, they were shown the survival rate. And mm -hmm. in the other example, they were shown the mortality rate. And 34% um, doctors were 34% more likely to recommend that particular um, procedure if they were shown the survival rates over the mortality rates. Um, so I guess, again, you could say that if the procedure was actually a really good thing and we think if we think about a parallel to COVID vaccines right now, which, you know, there's an infinitesimally small, um, you know, chance of getting, you know, having something go wrong, yeah. um, people often fixate on that versus the, the percentage the other way. So there's an element of power in how you frame things, I guess. Um, you, you... Does that work? So when you think about, and Marcel has said, you know, informed choice, pros and cons and it made me think about dark patterns um so it's a, is a nudge when is a nudge become a dark pattern for like an online you know something that's done online yeah and the social dilemma for those who've watched the social dilemma there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of dark patterns in there as well and i guess um for those who might have um read um richard thaler's book um and sunstein's book on um 
looking at nudge um there's a bit of conversation about that as well so you know is it nudge versus sludge are we manipulating people or are we helping people and i guess there's a, it's a bit about thinking about well what's the goal is the goal to help the person or is it helping somebody else that so that's the first thing is it like is it in the interest of the organization or the nudger is it um in the interest of somebody else so it's still altruistic but it might not be the individual that's being nudged or is it actually helping the person being nudged and also i guess the other side of that too you mentioned about um informed choice um, in doing this, do we take away the autonomy from people? Do people start to, I mentioned before with default bias, people start to start to potentially think that other people have already done some thinking for them. Do we actually un unintentionally often train people to not think for themselves? So there's some of the things that are, it's really important to think about. And by no means do I think that nudges aren't helpful. There's many, many cases where um, I think every, almost everybody would agree that they are helpful, but yeah, there's definitely this, yeah, we do need to be mindful of the, the dark oh, patterns. Yeah, kind of strays into ethics and, and yeah, yeah. So you mentioned um, Nudge, uh, Thaler and Sunstein, isn't it? Uh, yes. uh, authors of Nudge. Uh, I take it that that was an influence on your work and your thinking? Definitely, definitely. I was really um, lucky to meet Richard Thaler or go to a lecture of his when he was in Hong Kong. Um, a while ago so that was that was good um, and yeah most definitely it got me thinking um, so it has been an influence but I guess some of those other influences beforehand were, mm. were also really important um, as well yeah yeah um, so talking about uh, nudges how, how do you how do you kind of um, identify what the correct nudge is and the correct time and channel etc to in which to apply it if you see what I mean it's like how do you how do you evaluate and deploy yeah so I guess the first thing that's really important in thinking about nudges is what is the behavior that you're wanting to influence and I guess it's really important to be thinking about um, when we're thinking about that being awkwardly specific about the thing that we're wanting to do because nudges, because there are so many influences that people are experiencing at any point in time, being really specific is really important. So how do you know what the right thing is? Well, it goes back to actually, and this is where human-centered design and nudging work really nicely together, understanding what it is that you're wanting to design in the first place. So a lot of the things that we would do traditionally in human-centered design in the discovery stage, for example, of the double diamond, where we're wanting to work out what the problem is, that we're making sure that we've define the problem that we want to solve is really really important mm. um, and then in working out what nudges might be helpful there is a there's an element of art and there's an element of science to it so the science part is we can actually look at different biases and through observation um, hypothesize what biases might be at play in a particular scenario so if somebody's procrastinating or there's um procrastination is a, a bias and um you know ostrich effect where people put their head in the sand and try and ignore things they're kind of obvious ones as, as examples so you but a way of kind of getting a, a feeling of that is um when we're looking at our process we do the discover um, and define define what the um, the behavior is then we go out and do a bit of what we call diagnosis where we try and um, through observation, it could be looking at, you know, um, it, it could be looking at behaviours from metadata, so call centres and things like that, so you can see what people are doing um, and also observing what people are doing and then trying to understand right. the why, what's at play in those moments. And there is an element of hypothesis in that, but you can sort of, you know, glean a fair amount if you've become quite familiar with the the biases. Um, and, and then it's a matter of thinking, well, what can you do? What biases might you be able to, um, you know, use as enablers? So you've got the behavioural barriers, um, the cognitive biases that are barriers, and then what can you use as enablers? Um, and so then when you've done that and you've worked out the moments that matter and you apply that, you're in a position where you can start to test and observe how they work in that environment, potentially tweak them if they're not working the way that you would you would, you would imagine. I'm fascinated in that mashup of... Um... Uh, of um, behavioural design and, and HCD and def definitely want to uh, talk to you uh, some more about that before we finish. Although uh, before we dive into that, we can't really talk um, about behavioural design without um, having a kind of quick tour around uh, BJ Fogg and the Fogg behavioural model and everything that goes with that. So yep. I've got my own um, 
possibly uh, uh, erroneous uh, summary of the BJ uh, uh, Fog behaviour model, which I'll test with you in a moment. Uh, but ahead of that, can you can you talk us through a little bit about BJ Fogg and his work and the the, the model? Yeah, so BJ Fogg is a behaviour scientist um, from Stanford University. So he founded the Persuasive Design Lab at Stanford, and he did a lot of work in there looking at technology and persuasive design. But he then started to think about um, how you might actually be able to empower people because, you know, it, it, there is an element of when you're designing things from a nudge perspective, you're actually deciding yourself what you think other people, what the nudges should be to other people. And he was really interested in flipping that around and thinking, how can you help people do what they already want to do? Um, but in both of those fields, both the persuasive design and the tiny habits um, side of things, he looked at, um, he created a, a BMAP model, a behavioural model. And that model um, is really, it looks at the interplay, like the idea is that for any behaviour to happen, um, there's an interplay of um, motivation. So your reason for doing something, which could be intrinsic, it could be, you know, to do with pleasure or loyalty, those sorts of things, or it could be extrinsic. It could be to do with money or reputation, et cetera. So the interplay between motivation and ability and ability could be things like cognitive load. Um, it could be to do with time. It could be to do with how familiar you are with something, et cetera. And there's a trade-off. There's an interplay between those two. Um, and there's a bit of a trade-off. And then he talks about the prompt activation line. And the idea being that you also need a prompt. So it could be memory that's a prompt, or it could be something in your environment, et cetera, that helps you to remember to actually do a particular behavior. Um, and so you can imagine if your motivation would be very high if you're, you had a child um, and they were in a burning building and um, you, wanted, you, you would do anything to save them. So it wouldn't matter if it's really, really hard to do. You'd work out a way of making it work. So your prompt wouldn't need, you know, your prompt would likely succeed no matter what it was, just even yeah. seeing the burning building. Whereas um, if you're looking at um, doing something like eating healthy foods, um, and you've got cupcakes all around you, you might have, um, your motivation might wait because your motivation changes over time as well. So um, you might need to have quite a, quite a strong ability to do that. So having cupcakes around you might not be helpful. It would, and you know, the, the nearest healthy food was around the corner in, at the corner store. So yeah. you, you could potentially manipulate the environment so that you could change the ability, but the motivation you probably wouldn't be able to change if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of, in my own head, I'd simplified it. And I want to road test with you if I've been spending my time oversimplifying it. I've kind of always looked at it as a kind of pain versus gain equation. So is the, uh, is the, is the prize worth the effort, essentially? Yeah, well, it's interesting that you say that because I guess you could look at it that way. Um, but it's a please bit more. Feel free to, please feel free to tell me that I'm completely wrong, by the way. And now's my chance to get the expert analysis. <laughs> I don't think you're completely wrong, but what I would say is that it's quite nuanced um, mm -hmm. because, as I said, motivation can be fickle and it's not something you would want to rely on. Um, so you wouldn't necessarily say it's a, always a trade-off pain versus gain because when your motivation is really high, um, you might not feel that you're trading much off at all, if, if yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. But um, in different circumstances, the minute you get tired or hungry or, you know, you can't be bothered doing something, that's when your motivation would go down. And I would say you're absolutely right. When you're in those situations and your yeah. motivation is low, then it really is a pain versus gain. Um, yeah. yeah. So, again, context is key. Yeah. Yeah. Environment, and, context. And, yes. and all of that, all of those things can change over time. So it's not a, it's not necessarily a constant what would work for a person in on one day in one context might not be the same a week later or a month later. Yeah, exactly right, exactly right. And a lot of the time when people, you know, I would actually invite people to think of the, the BMAP model as an empathy tool as well, because mm -hmm. if you think about that interplay between motivation and ability, um, often when you think somebody doesn't care or their motivation is low, sometimes it's about the ability. Like um, as an example, you know, if somebody's running late to a particular meeting all the time, 
um, and this has happened to me, it could be because you've got back-to-back -back meetings um, on Zoom and you need to run to the bathroom or you need to grab a drink and to other people it might appear that you know your ability that, that your motivation is low but actually if you examine it you can actually potentially change things and you know maybe make meetings 50 minutes instead of one hour mm. kind of thing and and increase somebody's ability to do do that thing right okay um and i think in terms of uh how we dive into discovering what that combination is i might save that one till we talk about um uh the human-centered design process and and so um, i'll move us on to talk about uh, bj fogg's book uh, tiny habits mm -hmm. so my understanding again there and again um uh please correct me that's around kind of designing designing habits and making them stick essentially yeah yeah so um so yeah so this is this is the book there we go yeah tiny yep. habits bj fogg Yep, tiny habits, small the small changes that change everything. So um, basically, you, you largely that's absolutely right. So what BJ Fogg just discovered is that if you can actually make the ability um, like really easy, something really really easy to do, then you don't have to rely on that motivation that can change over time. So the idea is to create tiny habits that um, if you break it down to something really simple, like for example, um, if you're wanting to run five k's, instead of making that your an initial tiny habit, you, you can break it down to something that's like 30 seconds, takes you 30 seconds to do. So it might be putting your running shoes on and you start off doing that and you start making that stick. So there's a recipe where you actually anchor it into something else that you're already doing in your life. So um, you look at routines and things that you might already be doing. So it could be around, you know, having a shower or brushing your teeth, or it could be about when you drink, you know, grab, grab a drink or a bunch of other things. So you anchor it. And then you anchor that tiny habit into that. But the other, there's a little secret to this as well, which makes it a bit different to other tiny habit style, um, you know, atomic habits and things like that, which is this idea of hacking your emotions. So in hacking your emotions, you actually do this a C, so that you actually do a celebration. And the idea is if you work out a way of celebrating, um, you can actually create this emotion called shine. And if you do it at the same time, just after you've done the tiny habit, you can actually, your body can start to associate that shine feeling with the habit itself. Um, and then after a while, you might not need to be, you know, it might just become an automatic thing. And then you wait for the ripple effect for that tiny habit to actually help spark other things to happen to help you get to where you want to be. Right, right. And that book's uh, a year or so old. Um, yep. um, is it, what, what effect has it had on your, on your work and your thinking? Yeah, so I was actually doing behave, um, tiny habits um, a few, couple of years before that. So he'd sort of been um, doing that. Um, so it, it has been really, um, I think, very empowering from my perspective um, in helping people to be able to do the things that they would already want to do. And mm -hmm. I guess you, it might sound like it's the sort of thing you would just do as, on an individual basis, which is absolutely correct. It's a great way to help coach people or empower people to do things they want. But the other thing that we've also been looking at is getting groups to do it together. So you can actually potentially have the same thing, the same aspiration. So it could be about being less stressed or, um, you know, eating more healthily. Um, but you, you do it as a group, but you might pick your own tiny habit that goes with it. But you can actually, doing it together, you can actually achieve a, a lot more within an organisation or as a family, et cetera. So it's really helped me to shift my thinking a little bit in how you might be able to um, influence behaviour or help people with their behaviour. Uh, and um, I believe you're a you're a tiny habits coach. I am, yeah. So um, so that means I'm I'm allowed to use the tools that BJ Fogg has put together and the Tiny Habits Academy has put together. I also um, run five day challenges, a Tiny mm -hmm. Habits challenge challenges, and I would just say if anybody on this. Um, Zoom um, call would like to have a go at that next week. I'd be really happy um, if they just send me their details and I can put them on. It's an email-based um, five-day challenge where you create three tiny habits recipes and you um, you test them out each day and you get some advice and information um, from BJ Fogg each day. And I'm there to answer any questions as you go. Awesome. Um, uh, do not do not let me uh, round out the conversation without getting a full list of your contact details, Fiona, and the group <laughs> can help me to account on that. Uh, I think I might dive into that myself. Awesome. Um, so um, we've talked 
a little about um, bias. We've talked a little bit about uh, nudge and nudges. Uh, we've talked a little bit about um, BJ Fogg's uh, work. Now I really want to um, um, examine how uh, we can insert all of that behavioural design uh, uh, stuff into our what we would consider a more traditional um, human-centred design um, approach. So, um, at a high level, how do the, how do the two fit together? How does behavioural design and, and HCD kind of work in tandem? Yeah. So, human-centred design is great at identifying. Um, like, you know, from a, all the research tools that we have, a lot of them, especially the observational research methods that we use in human-centered design are really great for potentially understanding what's happening in a, in a current state and identifying what we might want to change. So that's where human-centered design comes in um, really well. And then um, when we're designing um, based on humans using human-centered design principle, identifying the moments where we might be able to get the most traction is really important. Then we can start to think about um, what levers might help from a behavior change perspective. Um, and that's where we can potentially look at the the tiny um, the nudges and potentially tiny habits. And I would also say it might be other levers as well. It might be other behaviour change levers because nudges and tiny habits are two elements that you can use when you think about behaviour change, but there are a bunch of other things as well. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, and you can create journey maps. And we've done this um, at Make, um, where we created some journey maps looking, we were working with a financial institution in Hong Kong. And we created, we looked at all of the touch points and you know, different swim lanes that you can think of when you're thinking about a service um, and identifying for the user where um, there might be some um, behavioral barriers in place and which moment, which of those are really important and then working out what the enablers might be and inserting those. So some of them are, you know, to do with gamification and, um, and, and so forth and procrastination as I meant, be, mentioned before, but also looking at the environment because even small things within an environment can really interplay on the whole human centered design process. So, you know, for example, if you've got a noisy room and, and it's cold, it's not going to necessarily be conducive to you making big decisions in your life. So it's sort of adding those to the mix when we're thinking about the human centered design process, if mm. that makes sense. So um, on a practical level, so take, picking up on that example you gave there about the um, doing the work with the bank uh, and essentially journey mapping uh, as, a, as a first step, um, uh, in in in, um, uh, in in examining things, uh, stepping back to the I assume observation and interview process that would have driven uh, that the creation of that journey map. Um, did you do, do did you do anything differently in the way in which you either observed or interviewed people to to bubble up those uh, 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 those uh, observations to then drive the behaviour change? Yeah, so I guess the two two key things I think there. So the first one is to really pair back thinking of anything to do with people reporting, you know, what their behaviour. So, you know, like reporting what they did, what they would do and going way more into the what's actually happening and understanding it from, you know, because it's actually when you think about behaviour change, it's all about what's happening. It doesn't necessarily, the, the motivation behind it and all of those sorts of things, while it's interesting to understand it's not actually going to get you from one step to the other so understanding that is really important and so dialing up those kinds of activities um, is is really important um, and then the other thing that you, you can do with human centered design but that has been really helpful with this kind of design is thinking about the micro interactions a lot more mm -hmm. so when you're designing both well it could be digital but um, in this case, it was largely physical. It's actually, we did a bunch of service enactments as well. So where we actually went through each step and we, we were really, really keen to understand what was happening in every micro moment rather than, well, not every micro moment, but the moments where we thought it was important um, mm. in a way that you might not do traditionally with human-centered design. Right, right. So there's, there's a slight change in emphasis on the way in which you're doing the research component. Yep. Um, both, and then, um, then in terms of the artifact at that stage of mapping things out on a journey map, does that, does, 
well, does the does I should ask actually the analysis? So having having changed the way in which you kind of observe and, and interview, is there uh, uh, like traditionally we do a big affinity map as a as a first step? Is there uh, does the style of that map or the style of your, your analysis change as well? A little bit. So one of the things that we do is we pull out our trusty, like we've created a, a I mentioned before that there's like a many, many, many biases, like, you know, mm. we're talking in the hundreds. Um, but what we've done is distill that down to a common set of, uh, I think it's 40 something biases. Mm -hmm. um, and then overlaying that analysis that you're talking about, looking at themes and so forth, it's actually looking at the biases as well and pulling out the cards and thinking about creating hypotheses about what might be at play there as well. So it's oh. adding another layer to what's already happening um, with that lens on. Interesting. And then I, I would assume that then manifests itself then in, into the uh, journey map. Yes, that's right. And then you start to hypothesise what might you be able to do to counter those behavioural barriers that are in play. So does that drive... Um, so then when that flips to ideation, is, yes. is, that, is it still around sort of forming how might we questions or, or does that change as well? No, you can definitely do how might we, but it's actually, we, we're getting, it's more micro how might we, I right. guess we're sort of limiting it. We're thinking about what are some of the, the changes we could put in play when it comes to the environment? What small thing tweaks might we be able to do to what's happening in a particular moment? So it's been very, very awkwardly specific, I guess, about what we're wanting to ideate on rather yeah. than ideating, you know, broad brushstroke, I guess. Yeah, so rather than like, and this would not be a good how might we, but just we'll run with it. So like, how might we reimagine the future of banking? It's much more around how might we, you know, insert sort of micro interaction here type, you know, yeah. how might we change X? Yes. And yeah. you do that after you've thought about broad brushstroke, how might we? So it might be that you are thinking about the future of banking or something like that. Mm. Once you've done that, it's then thinking about those micro moments. Well, then how do we work on those micro um, interactions or the moments that matter within that? So they work hand in hand. Yeah, cool. And then um, does that does that drive the ideation into a different place as well? Yeah. Well, what you what you're really looking for in in, in this is when when you're doing the ideation, it is it is really about making sure you've got some levers that you're looking at and something that you can measure um, as well um, and test. Um, and, and also test in more than one location. So you can start testing it, you know, in one set of circumstances, but actually it's important to check how generalizable those, um, those um, nudges are that you're putting in place because they might be very specific or they might be, have broader application. Even They might change even by time of day as well, depending right. on what it is that you're looking at. So, yeah, so it does, does change it a bit, but, um, but it certainly works very much hand in hand. Right, so there's some more rigor there. So you might, yeah, rather than just um, doing a walkthrough of a concept in one place and one time, you might. Sounds like you kind of mix it up a little bit to um, to to kind of stress test it a little more. Yeah, and one of the things we're lucky about at Street is um, because we, uh, you know, we have multiple cafes. We are in a position. We we sort of started doing this with looking at nudging people to eating more plant rich meals mm -hmm. we looked at little changes you could make in one location and keeping them the same in other locations so you have a control you know a control situation and then you have some variables that you're looking at and you, you can start to add and subtract them and you know do some meta analysis on you know what happens if you add two different variables together and so forth so we were actually getting right into that before the pandemic um, but had to put a bit of a stop to that and we're really looking mm -hmm. forward to picking that up again yeah um any, uh, shall I, talking of nudges, shall I nudge the audience for some more questions, Liz? Mm, we have one. I am, um, Miss George, just before we moved on topics. And okay. if you wouldn't mind, just looking back sure. to that feeling of shine. And yes, um, George has asked, what would be an example of a way to, of celebrating to create the feeling of shine? Okay. So this is, I was nearly going to mention it before, but I wasn't sure how deep to go in there because um, I guess some of the things, so BJ Fogg has, and I'd be really happy um, to, to share it if that's helpful, um, a list of different things that you can do. And some of them might seem a little bit over the top for, um, I guess, our 
you know, in Australia. Um, so there could be things like, you know, going, yes, or, you know, um, humming, imagining. Never gonna, I'm you, English, that's never going to happen. I might, I might mutter quietly in the corner. That's, that's, as, that's as demonstrative yeah. as I can be in English. And it's like do a happy dance and all of those sorts of things, which don't really necessarily feel that relevant to a lot of people and feel a bit awkward about it. However, in the list that BJ Fogg has, there's a bunch of ones that you can do because just imagining things like in your mind, like just acknowledging to yourself, yay, I did that is fine. You know, like, yay, I did that. And you don't actually have to do anything um, out loud. Uh, and if you ever want to experience what that feeling of shine looks like, you can just spend, if you put the timer on, say two minutes, I'm going to go around in the most messy room of my house and I'm going to pick things up and put them in their place. And every time I put something in its place, I'm going to celebrate. You'll get a sense of what that feeling is like, that shine feeling. Um, and if you're really finding it hard to find what comes natural to you, you can imagine this scenario. So imagine you've got a piece of paper and you curl, you scrunch it up into a ball and on the other side of the room, there's a bin. It's way over the other side of the room and you take that ball, you throw it across and miracle of miracles, it goes right into the middle of that rubbish bin. How do you react? You go, woo, or whatever it is. That could be your natural way of celebrating. Um, and the other one is if you imagine you open up an email and the email says, dear, whoever you are, um, congratulations, you were, you were the successful applicant for this job. How do you respond? And that probably gives you a sense of how you naturally celebrate, if that makes sense. Mm. Great. Thanks, Fiona. Um, Thank um, and I'm interested in looping that back into the notion of fitting it into a human-centered design process. So you, you, you mentioned around... Um, um, probably more rigorous uh, testing of those interactions. Um, how do you, you gauge how well they've landed and how do you, how do you gauge whether, whether the um, uh, if participants might have that, that, that shine moment or, uh, you know, how, 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 do you, how, yeah, how do you know that they've landed? Yeah. So um, if people are doing it on an individual basis, I guess that's easy for them to track, you know, and we mm. encourage people to play around with the tiny habits recipes because sometimes you've got to find, as, as I mentioned, you need the anchor moment, the you know, the place the, to plant your mm. tiny habit. It's often about playing around with what works for you. So, and you can, you know, you'll know after X number of days whether that's working, but you can start to track these things as a group as well. So if we're talking about that, and an example I'll give is um, BJ Fogg and the Tiny Habits Academy were asked by a hospital to help reduce stress, help nurses with stress reduction. And so they did a series of coaching sessions, which were actually just by Zoom. And what they did is they worked out what the common, um, what, what the common anchors might be. So in, in a hospital, it might be after, you know, a call button goes off, after they take a sip of water, after they park their car, those kinds of things, or log in for the day. Um, and then they worked out a bunch of things that you could do to reduce stress. So things like, you know, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, saw, I'll say thank you to somebody, I'll take three deep breaths, whatever it might be. And so they did that and everybody could pick their own celebration because as we mentioned, that's kind of a personal thing. And, you know, um, a hip thrust for one person might be a celebration for another person that might be incredibly <laughs> embarrassing. Um, so people could pick their own celebration. But what they did is they, they did that um, for four weeks and then they did a three-month follow-up and they got an independent person to come out and they did a pre and post um, intervention um, analysis and um, they found that the nurses there was a statistically significant reduction in stress in those nurses so I guess you can do things like that if you wanted to be quite um, formal uh, about it. What, what, what's your, um, what's your uh, opinion on the sort of qual versus quant uh, measure of outcomes like that because um, obviously in you know uh, human-centered design approach is more um, generally speaking uh, more uh, qualitative rather than quantitative where, where, where do you sit on that yeah I mean I I I come from a background of qual largely qual research so I value yep. qualitative research enormously mm -hmm. um, having said that um, if we're actually wanting, you know, when we go out and consult or, you know, have a project, et cetera, I guess at the end of the day, we want outcomes. And so to me, being able to measure some of these things 
is really important. So I would actually say I feel like it, there's a great, um, you know, they're, they're actually complementary to each other and I embrace the idea of measuring the right things. And I guess it's measuring the things that are important, not just measuring, you know, I think I personally would say in human-centred design area, I think often we get measures that are not helpful. So sometimes, mm. for example, and I don't know, this might be controversial, but for me, NPS as an example might be something that it has its place maybe, but it's not necessarily always that helpful, even though senior managers might want it. But it's actually working out what is important to measure, I guess, is what I would say. Uh, nice nice to find someone else. Uh, uh, if if, if uh, Lisa Marie had a dollar for every time she'd heard me ranting on about uh, NPS, uh, we probably wouldn't have to do as much consulting work as we did. <laughs> as we do. So, uh, yeah, uh, completely uh, agree with that. Any any other questions? At yes, the Marcel's got one and he's on video. Maybe he'd like to ask it. <laughs> he wants to unmute. unmute. You know, at our office, Marcel, um, we have a rule if you, um, you're on mute when you talk, you have to do 10 push-ups, but I won't make you do that now. Can I, can I just do a hip thrust? I was asking for Marcel's Christmas card oh. this yeah. right there. <laughs> <laughs> I know you. <laughs> I, I was just, um, this is amazing, by the way, Fiona, um, I was just interested in like with the issue of sort of context and how people are feeling and then how we design experiences. How do we how do we sort of how do you go about designing sort of consistency in terms of outcome? So how do you how do you take into consideration this sort of diverse context of what's going on in environments and how they might shift and then design nudges, I suppose, for want of a better word, to then deliver particular outcomes with it, given those contexts and changes? Yeah, so that's a really, really good question, um, an excellent question, in fact. Um, so I, I think the, f the first thing is, like I was talking before about being awkwardly specific, so I guess it is really working out what you're wanting to do in a particular context and defining what that is. Um, and so if you're wanting something to be enduring over time and you're you know, like thinking of it, um, so you, you need to understand what happens in that, in a particular context over time as, as much as anything else. Um, but it's also, I guess, really being clear on who you're designing for. So it may be that you have to narrow down who you might apply a particular nudge or you're, you're, you're designing a nudge for. So getting really specific about who the audience is, it might be that one nudge does not fit all. Um, so it's about understanding those things as well. So a lot of observation. Um, you can get people to report how they feel as well. So, you know, to get an insider view of like the, what's going on internally as well to sort of give you some clues about it. Um, but yeah, it's a lot about observation um, in there. Can I follow that up with a, a question, if that's okay? Um, so uh, if you're looking at systems and organisations, <clears throat> excuse me, where you have like management that needs behaviour, but then there's also where people, in the, you know, workers also need to shift behaviour as well. So we, we design for individuals, but how do we sort of build these systems where those individuals have to be motivated because they're interrelating and impacting on each other? Yeah. So I guess with, with nudges, um, it's probably a little bit less about motivation than working out what can you do to help people, you know, move within a particular environment. But, um, yeah, you're probably looking at different kinds of nudges. Like if you're thinking about a common behaviour that you're wanting, you probably need to understand what's going on in the different contexts and worlds of those different people. So breaking it down by persona would be a really important thing. So not necessarily feeling that you can have a broad brushstroke, you know, broad spectrum set of nudges and so forth. The other thing that I guess I would mention as, as well is, I guess before I'm, I mentioned the idea of behaviour change, like thinking a bit more broadly as well. So it may be in some situations a nudge is the appropriate thing, but in, in other situations it might be other mechanisms like, you know, incentives and, you know, other things like that that you might want to draw on. Um, so you've been doing an awful lot of work in kind of... Um, bringing together human-centered design and, and behavioral design. Um, where do you see things heading? What's the, what's the next kind of evolution uh, for you? 
Yeah, so I'm really interested in up in the ante when it comes to living lab kind of environments. And some of the work I'm moving into is very much that. So how do we actually create ways of measuring? And, you know, I mentioned before about having control situations and so forth. So mm. that's something I think that is in increasingly important because I've actually observed that a lot of people have started using um, nudges and behavioural design, not necessarily um, going to the next step of measuring things. So, yeah. so there's a chance, you know, when you do that, that you're going to get it right because you hypothesise something, you're basing it on informed knowledge, but how do you actually get more assurance that you're going in the right direction? Um, the second thing is uh, I believe that, and I'm really interested in behaviour change as well. Um, so there's a bunch of meta-analysis meta that have been done, including there's a um, behaviour change wheel, which is actually look, looks at um, a whole bunch of different studies that have been, uh, different frameworks, I should say, and which ones actually have been the most effective and, and not. Um, and then thinking maybe not so much about just nudges and tiny habits, but thinking about actually, if we think about what we're wanting to see, what behaviour we're wanting to see, um, and where in a system we want to see it, what levers or interventions might make the most sense from a behaviour change perspective. So if we could do that, we would have an amazing toolkit, you know, mm -hmm. to be much more powerful than, um, I guess, just looking at things individually. Um, so I see that as a really important way forward. And then the other one, I guess I've hinted at a little bit too, is just getting a bit more under the bonnet of ethics and thinking yeah. about how do we make sure that what we're designing, you know, ethics is hard because, some of it's opinion based. You can't get around that. Some at some point, you know, people's opinions come into it um, mm. as much as anything else. But being clear on, you know, what what's okay and what's not, because at the moment things are very largely unregulated. There's very few rules, and um, I think the UK has some legislation that you need to be transparent um, when you're implementing nudges. So you have to make sure that people know. Okay. A reasonable person would understand that there's a nudge in play, but. Right. In most other places, there's nothing. And, you know, it can be used for really, like, you know, if you think about gambling and other things like that, um, it can be used in ways that there's, you know, and I guess the um, the the social dilemma was a good example of, um, for those of where, where, where organisations are just, you know, going, using nudges how they say fit rather than what is appropriate. And, and last... Um... Last question before we uh, throw uh, to the room and say cheerio to our podcast uh, listeners. Um, wanted to sense check uh, something with you around, uh, you were talking about sort of control experiments and uh, at street where uh, make a change in one location and not in the other and, and measure. So um, would I be right in thinking that that, that kind of test and learn uh, post inverted commas go live is, is, is very important too? Yeah, and it, it's, it is very important, and in particular because an environment can change as well. So a nudge that might have been, you know, working really well might actually flop if you make make other changes to an environment. So um, or a process, or you know, like if, if there's a new new systems or processes put into play. Yeah, you need to re continually um, identify those, and people can change, and technology can change as well. So you can imagine if people are doing things in a different way, a nudge that once worked might no longer work. Mm. Um, so yes, it's really important to do health checks on a regular basis. So um, that brings us very nicely uh, to the end of our recorded segment. So those those with us uh, in the room live, please hold tight. We'll have uh, another uh, fifteen minutes or so. But before we uh, uh, round out the podcast. Uh, Fiona, I know you do a heap of work and a heap of training. Where where can people keep up to date with what you're doing and, and investigate training opportunities and how can everyone get aboard your uh, uh, your five-day uh, uh, tiny habits uh, thing that you mentioned? Yeah, so the five-day tiny habits challenge, if um, people would like to email me, I'm really happy to for that to be the case. So my email address is fiona.mehan, M-E-I-G-H-A-N, at street.com.au. Um, and uh, a bunch of our training, other training that we have in play, um, we're actually just about to, at Street, we're about to put things on our website. We haven't actually done that yet, but we have some training there on behaviour change, um, tiny habits, mental health first aid, attachment and trauma-informed practice, um, ways to wellness, those sorts of things. And at MAKE, we're doing a bunch of work on systems thinking and behavioural design as well. 
and um, make on Make's website there is a, there are actually links to the kinds of training that happen there. That's makestudio.com.au, I believe. Yes. And yes. and uh, just to clarify for anyone not familiar with Street, Street in this instance is S T R E A T. Yes. Correct. Thank you. Yeah. Good. Yes. Good pick up. Thank you. Um, uh, oh, my pleasure. Um, so. Um, Thank you so much uh, for amazing insight and, uh, um, and and being so generous with your time. I'm going to get you to be slightly more generous with our audience in a moment, but I just wanted to say that formally before we rounded out the podcast. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, uh, for anyone listening to this who wants to come along live next time and hear what goes on in the mythical 15 minutes of bonus time, uh, you can uh, find us uh, via Splendid and Friends on Meetup uh um just just uh look in the melbourne area uh you can follow splendid studio on uh linkedin we're normally pretty good there and one day soon uh we might have our new uh bit like you fiona one day soon we might have all of this stuff on the uh, splendid studio uh website but uh you can uh, take a chance that by the time you're hearing this it's all done uh, and check us out at splendidstudio.com.au so um to round out uh, uh, our recording, thank you so much, Fiona. Uh, it's been a real pleasure and thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure too.